I was reading an article on relationships this week, and I came across a few interesting thoughts and, and comments. Uh, one writer said this, if you have great relationships, there's virtually nothing that can defeat you or even discourage you. Having a close friend doubles every joy and halves every defeat. Isn't that good? But one study asked 1,500 people how many friends they had that they could talk to about their personal troubles or their personal triumphs. 1,500 people surveyed how many friends they have. 25% said they had none. 50% said they had no one to talk to outside of family. That's discouraging. That's discouraging, except for the fact that one of, most, one of the most amazing truths of Scripture is that we can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. He'll listen to us. We can talk to him anytime. He knows us. We can know, know him. Now, now, what we do here when we come to church and we send missionaries out, we're not, we're not practicing a religion Following Jesus is not a system of, of practices and rituals and ceremonies. We have a relationship with the triune God. And I guess the question that I want us to ask this morning is, do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus where you could talk to him anytime, anywhere, about anything as a close friend? Because if those same 25% people that had no one to talk to, if they knew Jesus, they'd have somebody to talk to. Well, we're continuing our study of Romans today, and uh, if you would uh, open your Bibles, move into, move, or, uh, uh, yeah, turn to chapter 7. The ushers have the Bibles back here. If you don't, don't have one, we would love to give you one. Uh, our text this morning is Romans 7, 1 through 6. Now, as, as we've been going through Romans, Paul has been talking about the pervasive nature of sin and how it separates us from God. In chapter 5, uh, Paul explains that when Adam sinned, sin and death entered the world. Prior to that sin, Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship with God. We don't quite know exactly how it worked, but they walked and talked with God in a very personal, intimate friendship. But after sin entered the world, God had to put distance between himself and humanity or his holiness would have simply vaporized the humanity that he had just created because of the sin that was in humanity. So God put in place a system um, whereby he could have a relationship with his people Israel. He set up the law. He set up a sacrificial system, uh, priests. Uh, he, he told them how to build the tabernacle and then the temple. It was a very, very complicated system uh, just so God could show his people his character so, so he could explain to them what he is like and so he could have some level of interaction with humanity. But, but at best, it was cumbersome. I remember reading through uh, the early books of the Bible maybe six months ago, Leviticus and some of those books, and it's like, Wow. All they ever had time to do was take sacrifices to the temple, to wash their clothes, to shave their heads, to go see a priest about this and go see a priest about that. I mean, there was absolutely no time for golf or binge-watching Netflix at all. I mean, what a cumbersome system they had. The law was good. Don't, don't get me wrong. Paul makes that very clear in Romans. The law was good, but it wasn't great. 
It provided a way for God's people to have a relationship with God, but it wasn't very personal. So in Romans, Paul is writing now to a Jewish audience who would have worked tirelessly to keep the Old Testament law as a way of dealing with their sin and having some connection with God, having some kind of relationship. But all the law did was point out even more areas where they disobeyed, revealed even more sin in their lives, and it just kind of kept spiraling down. But now, Paul writes, now the law has passed away and there is even an even better way to deal with sin and to have a relationship with God. They no longer needed to keep the strict requirements of the law. They no longer needed to follow those arduous rituals and, and all, all the cleansings and so on. They have been released, and we have been released from the bondage of the law by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verses uh, 4 and 6 in our text this morning. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We've died to the law. We've been released from the law. Now, we are 2,000 years removed from being released from the law when Paul wrote Romans. And most of us, I hope, don't struggle with taking sacrifices to the temple. Although, if you're going to bring some chocolate to the office, that's, that's fine. It won't do a thing for your sins. But anyway, um, you don't struggle with having a priest come out to your house to check for mold. We don't have to burn our mildewy clothes like the Old Testament prescribed, we are so blessed to be apart from that system. But I think way too often, we still treat our relationship with God in a transactional way. We don't fully embrace the fact that we, the church, are the bride of Jesus. He is our husband. That is a pretty intimate relationship. But all too often, we act like we're this, that what we're doing is a religion with rules and with rituals, and we have to look and act all religious and pious, when in reality, we just need to be the bride of Jesus. So what does that relationship look like? How do we, as the body and bride of Christ, how do we, as the church, how do I, as a follower of Jesus, live in light of this relationship with the sovereign God? And maybe the question is, how do we be a good bride instead of a practitioner of a religion? What I want to do with our time this morning is look at four facts or four dimensions of this relationship with God that Paul unpacks in Romans 7 in the first six verses. First of all, we need to understand that the old relationship to the law is dissolved. It no longer exists. When we died with Jesus, back in chapter six of Romans, we saw that. When we died to Jesus, we died to sin, we died to the law, we died to the demands and the condemnation of the law. That old relationship is dissolved. Now what Paul does here is, is interesting. He takes an example from marriage to illustrate the point that death severs a relationship. When one spouse dies, both spouses are released from the spiritual and civil laws of marriage. Look at verses 1 through 3 of the text. 
Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Paul's, Paul's directing his attention mainly probably to the Jewish, his Jewish listeners. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And I would argue so is he, because he's dead and is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, as a married man, I belong to my wife. And I use that word belong because in verse 4, if you look down, that's the word that Paul uses, that we have died to the law so that we may belong to another. So I'm going to use that word belong. I belong to my wife and she belongs to me. We are bound to each other in this lifetime relationship called marriage. But when one of us dies, the bond of marriage is broken. If I were to die first, which I hope doesn't happen because we have an agreement that she will die first. Um, <laughs> but I'll just use it this way. If I were to die first, Dawn no longer belongs to me. She no longer has a relationship with me. She is free to marry someone else and belong to him and have a relationship with him. And it's not adultery. It's not sinful. It's not wrong. It's perfectly okay. The death of a spouse severs the lifetime bonds of marriage. Paul's point is this. Death dissolves the old relationship to the law and paves the way to enter into this new relationship with Jesus. Which brings us to the second quality or the second dimension of this new relationship. And that is this. Now we belong to a new lover. We have a new lover. Just like in marriage, if, 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 if I were to die, Dawn could take a new lover and it would be perfectly appropriate. But what we have in Jesus is a new lover, not the law, not some set of religious rituals, not rules about how to live, but a beautiful relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also, and that you is plural. So you all have died to the law through the body of Christ so that y'all may belong to another. I'm sorry, I sound like Terry. <clears throat> um, I'll try to fix that. <laughs> only, only he can pull off a y'all. Um, you've died to the law so that you might belong to another. The Bible repeatedly calls God's people his bride. Israel was God's bride. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. This is language of, of relationship, of passion, of exclusivity, of intimacy. I hope it doesn't weird you out to think of Jesus as your lover. I really questioned if I was going to use that language. I thought, absolutely, because that's what he is. This goes far beyond religion. We as the body of Christ here at Cornerstone, which includes everybody in this room, everybody in the next service, everybody that couldn't make it today, we as the body of Christ, we are in a love relationship with Jesus that is more intimate, more genuine, more real, more beautiful than any human love relationship you could ever possibly have. But our relationship with the triune God is multifaceted. He is not just our husband and our lover. He is also our father and our master and many other things too from scripture. 
Each of those facets of our relationship unpacks aspects of how we understand this relationship with God. There's different language for relating to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. But each of those persons of the Trinity are fully God, so they're all aspects of our relationship to God. Last week in chapter 6, Todd shared how we are in this master-slave relationship with Jesus, and we are to obey him and serve him. Absolutely. But he's also our father, and so we come to him as a child, and we love him as a child loves his or her father. Now, I don't, maybe you have really, really unique kids, or you are a unique kid, but I don't know of any child that loves their father because of all the rules he imposes. My dad is so great because I have to clean my room every day and I can't have a cell phone. I love him so much. I've got to take the trash out every day. I, I don't think that's the basis of loving our fathers. We love our dads. Kids love their dads because dads keep them safe and go to their ball games and have tea parties with their daughters. They play Legos on the floor. They dig in the dirt in the backyard. It's relationship, not rules. My wife had such an awesome relationship with her father. As a teen, she faced the same temptations of sex and drugs and everything else that's out there that everybody else faces or many face. But what kept her pure, what kept her safe, was not a list of rules. It wasn't her parents saying, you can't do that. We have a rule in this house. You can't do that. That wasn't it. She loved her father deeply, so deeply that she could not bear the thought of disrespecting him or disappointing him. Because she knew if she, if she disobeyed, if she, if she went down some of those paths, he would be heartbroken and she couldn't stand the thought of that. Even to this day, when she talks about that, she'll tear up at the thought of disappointing her daddy. Is that how we love our father? Do we love our Heavenly Father so much? Do we have such a deep relationship with Him? Do we see Him as our, as our husband and our lover and our father in such a way that we can't bear the thought of disobeying Him or disappointing Him? Do we really realize that sin breaks the intimacy the, that we have with our Father? Do we grieve and mourn when that intimacy is broken? John Piper, in his book, Future Grace, wrote that sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Let me repeat that. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. We should seek to get to the place where we are so satisfied in Jesus, that relationship with him is so intimate and personal that sin no longer has any appeal to us. I'm not there. But I want to be. That's where I want to be. Whenever I do something stupid and sinful, it's like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. You are so much better than that bowl of potato chips. That bowl of potato chips. But in the moment, it doesn't feel like it. Sin is what you do when your heart is not, let me add the word, fully satisfied with God. The third quality of this or dimension of this new relationship with God is that 
is that we are being righted by God. Now, all through our study in Romans, uh, Todd's been using, and I want to keep using the idea of using the word righted instead of righteousness. It's the same thing, but the idea is that we're being made right. The text in, in, chapter four, in, in verse 4 in Romans says that we bear fruit for God. The idea is in that bearing fruit is that we're being righted, we're being made right. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that, for the purpose that, this new relationship is in place so that we may bear fruit for God or that we may be made right for God. Sin has completely broken this world. We are all messed up. The world is messed up. There are bacteria and viruses that are sweeping through the world and scaring people to death. People do horrible things to other people. It's, it's a messed up world. It's a fallen world. But Jesus is working to make us into the people he intended us to be. This new relationship that we have with him produces good fruit, produces rightness, produces joy and peace and calm, even when faced with a coronavirus or with government elections that we don't like or the crash of the stock market. It's a messed up world. And if you listen to the news too much, you think you would believe that the world is falling apart. And even if it is, we know who's in control of it all. In light of God being our husband and our lover and our father, are any of those things really that big of a deal? Are they? Are they? Help? Man, okay, yeah, wash your hands more often than you used to. I found a bottle of Purell in the back door pocket of our car. I thought, man, I'm going to put it on eBay for 100 bucks. <laughs> I mean, this is awesome. We're rich. We can retire now. Take advantage of people's... No, not, no, no. <laughs> Jesus is in control, and we are his bride. We're his wife. He's got us. I am better because I am in love with Dawn, my wife. I am more right because I have a relationship with her. Doesn't always feel that way. I don't always think so, but she makes me a better person through and through. So much more so than if, than if she gave me a list of rules. Like, okay, Chris, here is what I need you to do in our relationship. Number one, flowers once a month, preferably on the first of the month or at least the first week of each month. I want you to do the dishes half the time. More is better. I want you to kiss me at least four times every day and more is better. I want 10 I love yous per week. And if you do the math, that's one a day plus a few extras. No, that's not how a relationship works. Relationships are more organic and they're messy than that. Communication with those we love is far more genuine and honest and unscripted. I would like to suggest that our relationship with God is reflected in how we pray. How do we communicate with our husband, with our father. Brian Hedges uh, wrote a book, um, the name of it's on the next slide, um, 
And he uses the father-child relationship to explain how our prayer life reflects our relationship with God. Listen to this quote. Unfortunately, many of us have been taught to pray in very unchildlike ways. We change our tone. We use spiritual-sounding words. We attempt to do uh, adoration prior to supplication. Consequently, we veil our hearts and pretend to be something we're not. Let Let me highlight that phrase. We veil our hearts and pretend to be something we're not. We try to act all grown up, but in the process, we lose our sense of helplessness. But as one writer says, don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. They come as they are, runny noses and all. That's how we go to our father. That's how do we go to our husband. Of course, always remember that we're praying and talking to and have a relationship with the holy sovereign God of the universe. And there's nothing wrong with structures of praying and prayer books and prayer lists and prayer apps and all that. Just make sure we don't lose the freedom and the wonder of relationship. It's like my wife, my lover. Can you imagine if I walked in the door and I said, hello, my beloved, I am home. Please prepare us to my evening meal whilst I watch the news. Hast thou been well today? Seriously? I mean, you're laughing. Thank you. That's supposed to be stupidly funny. Versus, hey, baby, I'm home. Hey, let's go out to eat tonight. It's been a long day. Let's just go out to eat. That's how the relationship should be. Maybe our prayers need to look more like this. Can you relate? Dear Jesus, amen. We are broken people living in a broken world. We have got to quit pretending that we have it all together because we don't. It's of zero help to others in the bride of Christ to put on a front and pretend that things are fine. I know I'm messed up, so if you act like you have it all together, I figure something must be wrong with me, so then I'm tempted to fake it. We've got to move away from just this transactional relationship with our lover, with Jesus. We've got to to be the bride. We've got to be honest and real and admit you're messed up and admit we're screwed up and admit that our relationships with one another aren't right. But the amazing thing is we are not on our own to figure this out. God has not left us to our own designs, our own tricks, our own techniques, Paul wraps up his thoughts on this new relationship with the most amazing, astounding truth that would have blown away his Jewish readers who were still stuck in the law. And it's the fourth dimension of this relationship with God, and that is we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The Holy Spirit living in us, the Holy Spirit who is God completely and fully living in us makes all the difference in the world. 
Following the law was not a relationship. It was a list of rules that no one could perfectly obey. It did not have the ability to deal with sin and deal with a broken world and deal with broken people. But the Holy Spirit does. And Paul is building his case, and we're going to get to chapter 8 in a couple weeks, where he unpacks this relationship we have with the Holy Spirit and how amazing it is. The Jews needed a safe distance between them and a holy God. All those sacrifices, all those mold and mildewy things, and all those priest stuff, and all the, the temple, and all, all of that was designed to keep a safe distance between them and God because they would have been vaporized if they got too close. But now we have that very same holy God living inside us, and we're not vaporized. He, he is right here in a personal, intimate relationship. All because of the, 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 the shed blood of Jesus through whom God the Father looks and sees Jesus' pure life and sinless life. And he says, okay, I'll put my Holy Spirit in that person. We don't need to put on a fake front. We don't need to hide behind a crazy, busy schedule. He knows us inside and out. He knows it all. He knows everything about you, all those little quirks and those little hidden sins that you would be embarrassed to death for anybody to ever find out. And he's still our husband and our lover and our father. And he will never leave us. He's always there to talk to, to ask for help, to share our frustrations. He will walk with us in and through the deep, dark valleys, not just the mountaintops. We could tell him anything and everything. He's a friend that is so close, so intimate, so personal, and so amazing that the allurements of sin should fade and pale in comparison. And should we sin, or I should say when we sin, when we give in to temptation, he is right there with us, disappointed and hurt that we find more joy in that thing than we do in our relationship with him, but he's ready to forgive us and give us strength to press on and keep going. Remember that quote from the intro? If you have great relationships, there's virtually nothing that can defeat you or even discourage you, and we can have the ultimate great relationship. We don't need to worry about coronavirus. We don't need to worry about the stock market crashing. We don't need to worry about the elections because we have Jesus. Thank you. Somebody's listening. I think that was Shiloh, right? That's it. Nobody else is paying attention. Our husband, our lover, our father, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit should be the one captivating voice we hear in a world gone mad. Forget the news, forget the podcast, forget the many allurements of the world. Listen for Jesus. There's a story from ancient Greek mythology about the sirens, beautiful, seductive women who would lure sailors to their destruction with their songs, the siren songs. Mythology tells the story of two different sailors and how they handled the allurement of the sirens. Ulysses ordered his crew to plug up their ears so they couldn't hear the siren song. And he ordered his men to tie him to the mast. He left his ears open so he could hear. Under no circumstances were they to untie him, and they sailed past the sirens. The siren song drove him crazy. He pulled at the ropes and struggled 
But the ropes held and they sailed on past. Jason was another sailor and his approach was different. He took on his ship, the musician Orpheus, the most amazing musician of the ancient world. Jason did not plug his sailor's ears or he didn't tie himself to a mast. He had Orpheus play such beautiful music that the song of the sirens was ineffective because all the men were captivated by this more beautiful music. So the allurement of the sirens had no effect on them. I guess the question is, what is the siren song in your life? What's the siren song in my life? What, is, what allures me? What captivates me? Is it trying to look like a good Christian? Is it keeping up with the Joneses? Is it people-pleasing? Or as Todd pointed out last week, maybe the biggest allurement we face is this crazy busyness of our lives. Does the beauty of Jesus so overwhelm us that those things fade away? Living by the law and by rules and by rituals is tying ourselves to the mast, gritting our teeth and trying our best to resist sin. Living by the Spirit, living in relationship with the triune God, is enjoying our relationship with Jesus so much that the songs of sin are no longer attractive. I challenge each of us this morning to take a good hard look at our relationship with Jesus. Is it legalistic? Is it transactional? Is it formal? Is it stiff? Is it structured? Or is it real and genuine and messy, organic? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come to you all messed up, completely undone, not having it together, and you love us. Lord, may we seek to be good brides to you and not good practitioners of a religion. Father, fill our hearts with the reality of who you are. Those of us that know you as Lord and Savior, make it abundantly clear that you love us and you live in us. And you have this relationship with us. May we live that way, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.